Hey guys, tonight is Sunday Reading Night, and I will be reading from The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. Be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Happy Sunday, everybody. How's everybody doing? I'm doing great. It's finally beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I want to put a shout out on, to my neighbors and my friends who came to my aid this weekend. Uh, last year, during those big storms that we had here in Sacramento, I run about, uh, hang on, it's going to be this. I run about 3,000 lights on Christmas lights on my, in front of my house. And, um, Last year, the winds took out half of them. I don't know why, but uh, took out half of them. So I was kind of bummed at starting things out this year. So that's why I didn't really didn't get motivated until a couple of weeks ago to get going on lights. And I was trying to figure out how I was going to do it because, you know, I'm used to doing it a certain way, right? Anyway, uh, I kind of got on that Nextdoor app and I, I put out an APB saying, hey, you know what? This is what happened. I'm upset about it. I'm really bummed, you know, and I, I, you know, I do this every year and, and this, that, other thing. Well, I had four or five people step up and bring and donate lights. So plus my friend, Karen Clark, you know, Karen Clark, who's a line producer on the show, she did the same for me. So I'm really excited because I'm able to actually decorate my yard like I usually do every year. So I'm just about done. I'll be finished tomorrow and uh, put myself on the light tour because I did not put myself on the light tour yet. And uh, at least I was able to do it, and that makes me happy. And it's really fun to see, you know, it's really nice to see that people are caring. I also was over at the animal shelter earlier today, and uh, it being Sunday and all, I was over there just getting some information about things. And when I got there, there must have been 20, 25 people in line. And what they were doing was they were all in line to adopt dogs. Of course, it's the holidays. People want to get dogs during the holidays. But it was nice to see, even on a Sunday, to see people lined up waiting for the place to open to adopt dogs so that was a cool thing anyway i never gave my name my name is charlotte i'm going to be your host for the next hour i'm also the owner of the california haunts paranormal investigation team based out of sacramento california we're 45 strong up and down the state and uh, that means if you have a paranormal need we can get to you it might take us a couple days though because uh, california is this huge state people don't realize how big it is we've got beaches we've got mountains we've got We've got high desert, low desert, you name it. We've got big, wide, you know, big, wide spaces, empty spaces. We've got farmland, rural. So it might take us a while to get to you, but we will get to you. And in the case that we can't get to you right away, we have psychics on staff who are able to uh, talk with you on the phone. And if you do have something paranormal going on, they're able to settle down the energy fairly quickly and, and, and keep it down until we can get there. Okay, that being said, if you're watching, I'm trying to figure out. This is all like opposite from what it is. I'm trying to pull. There we go. If you're watching from Facebook and you'd like to hear what you see tonight, please be sure to share us. Share, share us around. Share us with your family members. Do that kind of thing. 
Also, show us some love and you know, happy faces, smiles, things like that. Uh, thumbs up because what that does is that puts us in the FYP, the higher up in the FYP, higher up in the where the computers I mean Facebook and th that distributes ourselves further. And also, you can comment in the chat room. I'm, I'm not on TikTok tonight, so I'll be able to keep an eye on the chat room more. Uh, if you're watching from uh, YouTube, same thing. Okay, hit that follow button on Facebook, by the way, too, if you haven't done that. If you're watching on YouTube, same thing. We've got more than 800 videos over there. And uh, yeah, smiles, thumbs up, happy faces, whatever you got, hearts. Because again, that puts us up higher in the YouTube FYP, and it's the same process where it distributes us out to more people. Also, you can comment for that chat room as well. Okay. All right. My book, if you want to find California Haunts Radio, so I'm getting ahead of myself, you can find us on Facebook under California Haunts, California Haunts Radio, California Haunts Paranormal Team, Paranormal Investigation Team. You can find us under the Sacramento Sears. That's S-E-E-R-S. -E YouTube, you can find us at youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. Instagram, I am Ghosty Gal. It's all lowercase. You go over to uh, TikTok. We are California Haunts on TikTok. We're also uh, Ca California Haunts on Twitter and Cal Haunts on Twitch. Okay, that being said, tonight's book is written by a good friend of ours, uh, Sylvia Schultz. We met her through a book about a haunted um, mental hospital, an old haunted mental hospital. And uh, I realized, because I, I always wanted to read something, you know, dark during the holidays that, had, that's, that has something to do with the holidays or, or, the, or the winter, um, I realized that she had this book that we're going to be reading tonight. Excellent book. This is the second year I'm reading it. Uh, it's it's a it, it's great. It's a great it's a great it's a great even the second the second time around. You know, it's a terrific book. Also, I want to let people know uh, over at the uh, California Haunts Meetup page. You look you Google California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup. I do have the stuff up for next Sunday, 7 p.m. Pacific, where Nancy Mass is going to be doing solstice readings. Now, the solstice is a time of it's kind of like New Year's. It's a time of, 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 of letting things go and starting things anew. So the whole point of this reading, you'll get a 10-minute reading with Nancy Matt. And the whole point of this is that, you know, you can, you can ask her about something in the past. You can ask her about something currently. You can ask her about something in the future. Or maybe, you know, while, while, while she's doing the reading, one of your deceased relatives comes in the room. She'll even talk about that. So if that's something you might be interested in, visit the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup. And sign up there. It's really easy uh, to join up over there, and uh, there's no—I mean, there's nothing you have to do. There's no money involved, except for the, except of course for the reading, and that's done through PayPal, and it's it's pretty cool. And that's mainly where we advertise all of our events right now. Okay, okay. Let me have a little drink of water here, and uh, we'll get into our book really quick. And uh, let me just do this. For those of you keeping score and who wonder where, where Jack and Sally are, well, Jack and Sally went out last night and uh, they had some of that funny tasting eggnog. And so they couldn't quite get up this morning. So they're kind of sleeping it off right now. So that's why there's no Jack and Sally on my head tonight. Even Jack and Sally like the party. All right, let me open this up. And uh, like I said, give me a few, give me a couple minutes. My tablet is old and uh, it takes it a while. So we'll get this going here. Santa can bring me a new tablet if he wants. It's all good. Preferably a Samsung Galaxy Note 12-inch for my blind eyes. 
So I'm going to read for about an hour tonight from this book. And I do have allergy problems, so you might hear me sniffle or something during, during the read. I'm sorry about that, but uh, unfortunately, I've got allergy issues. Give me a second. Anyway, I hope everybody has a great weekend, you know, getting into the holidays, you know, doing holiday things, shopping, wrapping presents, you know, getting a hold of family members to come on out and all that good stuff. Okay, here we go. Let me get in here. This hat's kind of nicer in a way because it's lighter, but that's okay. I miss Jack and Sally. Jack liked this book, by the way. Jack took a liking to this book. <laughs> like I said, it takes this thing a couple tries to start up. There we go. Okay. All right. The book is The uh, Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. And as we left off, uh, we had the story. Oh, excuse me. As we, as we left off, we had the story of a mother that had died in the snow. However, she had put a robe over her infant child who had survived. That's where we left off. Okay. And the, the last, the last uh, sentences here is, the last two sentences, as he moved the robe off the child, the babe looked up and sweetly smiled. She was a mother that had saved the life of her child. Uh, I think it was a car wreck. And I think she had, she had put her, knowing that she was going to pass away, excuse me, knowing she was going to pass away, she wrapped her child in a robe. So there you have it, and he moved the robe from the, off the child, and the babe looked up and smiled. Okay, the next one is called Hell Hollow. So here we go. We're going to read for an hour. It is 6.11 right now. We'll go to 7.11 p.m. 7.11. Haha, <laughs> I like that store. Not all the tales of deep midwinter are uplifting as a mother sacrificing herself to save her child. The pioneers that settled the West and even the Midwest sometimes had to resort to desperate measures to survive the brutal winters. And sometimes their measures were unspeakable. Decatur sits in the heart of Illinois, of Illinois Prairie. The first settler in the area was William Downing, a fur trapper and honey gatherer. Hang on one second. Who built his cabin in 1820. More settlers followed, around 600 of them, and the town was founded in 1829. Most settlers lived outside of town in log cabins. Not many people had close neighbors. That was the appeal of frontier life. But at times, that life could be quite hard. The winter of 1830 is still known as the deep snow. That winter gave rise to many terrifying tales. The worst story by far came from the area known as Hell Hollow, and it still lives on in Decatur's history today. Perhaps the area's vicious reputation began that long ago winter. The woodland land that would someday be known as Hell Hollow was the most secluded of the settlements around Decatur in the mid-19th century. In fact, it was so far out of the way that most people in the surrounding area saw it simply as a place to bury the dead. The hills above the narrow valley had been used as a burying ground by local Indians for many years. The settlers took over the hills and haulers, using the land for the same grim purpose. Later still, that land would become Greenwood Cemetery, amazingly haunted in its own right. But well before the cemetery spook lights began to appear, well before the Greenwood Bride was buried here around 1926, before the cemetery was a popular spot for picnic lunches, 
in the 1900s before Confederate soldiers dead and dying of yellow fever were hastily buried when their prisoner transport train stopped in Decatur on the way to Camp Douglas in Chicago. Even before then, the settlers of Decatur were buried here. And they have never rested easily. The area that would become Greenwood Cemetery was a darkly wooded valley, shadowy with the secrets of the dead. It was avoided with superstitious dread by most of the settlers. However, in the late 1820s, a small group of pioneers built a handful of cabins in the valley west of the Indian burial grounds. They wrestled a living from the thickly timbered land for a few years. Then came the bitter winter of 1830. Snow fell thick in the valley. Winter storms sheeted the cabins with ice. Livestock froze. Game grew scarce. The settlers themselves began to starve. And the folks of Hell Hollow suffered the most. Cut off from the rest of the community, the people in the valley grew desperate. Any unwary game was quickly popped into a stew pot. Even the scrawny rabbits and squirrels. Supplies, dried fish, salt beef, flour, canned goods ran low. Eventually they ran out. The settlers foraged for food. But even wild food is not easy to come by in the winter. Pine needles make a fragrant tea. But the nourishment they give doesn't last long in the depths of winter. Even garlic mustard is hard to find when it's covered by several feet of snow. The settlers were forced to move on to rawhide, even shoe leather, which they boiled into a watery soup. And still, snow covered the, snow covered the ground, and ice made any travel treacherous. The supplies in the valley were long gone. Even the skinny deer were getting skittish with winter, and hunters had to stray farther and farther from the safety of their cabins to find any game at all. The settlers were reduced to the unthinkable. With no other food source available, they turned to each other. Early in the winter, an elderly member of the community had died. His body had been stored in outbuildings to be buried in the spring when the ground thawed. In desperation, the people of Hell Hollow sliced meat from the frozen corpse and ate it. The stories say that, in all, two people were eaten by their neighbors that winter. The settlers, whose lives were saved by the grisly deed, were sworn to secrecy, as if they, as if they would want to confess to such a horrible act. Later that year, the entire community simply vanished, and the legend of Hill Hollow began. The Phantom Saloon The Wild West held many secrets in its wide-open spaces. A thriving community could become a shivering ghost town, in the space of just a few years, if the mine failed or the promised railroad didn't come through. Sometimes it was just one building out in the middle of the lonesome prairie that held out for a few years, then fell into ruin. But every once in a while, a building doesn't die easily. Sometime in the mid-1800s, two ranchers were out riding the range in Park County, Wyoming. They had gone out in search of a herd of cattle. A blizzard was looming and they were charged with getting the Longhorns to shelter, but they were too late. The blizzard swept down quicker than expected. The two ranchers saw the cattle in the gully that was somewhat protected from the wind. Trusting in the cow's thick winter coats to keep them warm, the ranchers turned their horses to safety for themselves. A herd of cattle could huddle together for warmth. Two men and two horses out on the open plains during a blizzard would surely freeze to death. The two men headed for the ranch, but it was slow going, fighting the drifting snow. Sleet swirled around the riders, and their horses' heads drooped in exhaustion. Suddenly, a gray form in the distance resolved itself into a building. The riders were still miles from the ranch, and the shack would have to do for shelter. 
They dismounted, tied their horses under the lean-to at the side of the building, and went inside. The ranchers pulled the weathered gray door closed behind them and looked around. In the fading light of day that peeked through the cracks of the walls, they could see that the building had once been either a restaurant or, more likely, a saloon. Along one wall was a long bar with a cracked mirror hung behind it. One of the men looked behind the counter, hopefully, but any bottles were long gone. A few lonely tables stood around like strangers at a dance. The men unslugged their saddlebags and set about building a fire. There was a hearth, with a few dried sticks scattered on it. One of the men shaved a stick into tinder and struck a spark. Soon, a small fire was burning wanly on the bricks of the hearth. Somehow, the small flames just made the shadows in the rooms look deeper. The two men huddled close to the fire, warming their ch chilled hands. One of the men glanced over at the bar. Sure wish they left at least one bottle of whiskey when they cleared out, he thought miserably. Then he blinked. He thought he'd seen a shadowy figure behind the bar. The bartender? But as quickly as the shadow had appeared, it flickered and was gone. The man rubbed his eyes and turned back to the fire. Listen, do you hear that? The other man muttered. Could have swore I heard the neck of a bottle clinking on a glass. Can't be. That ain't nothing but wishful thinking, the first man said. But maybe. Just maybe. He had seen a ghostly bartender. He got up and grabbed one of the cold wooden chairs. These ought to burn good. He broke off a leg with a crack and laid the dry wood on the fire. It caught and the flames kept leapt up higher. The second man nodded his eyes wide. The sounds of a saloon began to unfold in the darkness around them. In the shadows, the light of the fire couldn't reach. The clack of poker chips came from a dusty table in the corner. A woman's high laugh made the men jump. Someone plunked out old Susanna on a piano that was slightly out of tune. The cheerful notes hung like brittle shards of ice in the air. The men moved closer to the tiny fire, praying for the dawn. At last, the black gloom of the room gave way to gray shadows. The phantom sounds faded away as the fire guttered out. The men yanked open the door and stumbled out into the singing cold. They'd never, be so they'd never been so glad to see the sun. They saddled their horses and urged them into a trot, breaking through the fresh snow. Neither man looked back, because in their hearts they both knew what they'd see. A broken-down shack, one that had been abandoned for decades. Wow. The Stockyards. Chicago's ghosts are myriad. They prowl the streets, the theater alleyways, the apartment buildings, the museums, and the police stations. There are six main police stations in the city. The Stockyards, Hyde Park, New City Englewood, De Plain, and Grand Crossing. They are all said to be haunted. The Stockyards, most of all. Death Sergeant William Printville spent a long storied career as a member of the Chicago Police Force. He served at the Stockyards for decades. Beginning his career in 1896, Printville was no stranger to the station's ghosts. In fact, he saw so many spirits in his years of service that he claimed he eventually got used to them and even grew to enjoy their company. One of those phantoms first made his appearance in the winter of 1902, on the night following his death in the basement of a building. The elderly gentleman was well known to the officers of the stockyards. They called him the old soldier. With a certain rough degree of affection. One winter evening, the old soldier showed up at the station He'd been tramping through the snow all day, and he had a place to spend the night. Sergeant Prinville suggested to the, to the old man that he bunk down in the basement, where the police often allowed the homeless to sleep. 
The old man nodded his thanks and went down to the warm basement where he curled up on one of the cots. During the night, other indigents made their way to the safety and warmth of the station's basement. Early the next morning, when everyone was waking up, several of the regulars noticed that the old veteran was still lying motionless in his bed. They realized the old fellow had passed away during the night. Hats in hand, they went upstairs to tell the officers about the old soldier's passing. In the wee hours of the morning of the next day, Sergeant Prineville was manning the duty desk. He was dozing in his chair, enjoying the cozy warmth of the station as the wind howled outside. Soon his shift would be over, and he could head home for breakfast. As he daydreamed, excuse me, like I said, my allergies. As he daydreamed about hot coffee and scrambled eggs, Sergeant Prinville heard a faint rapping sound at the station door. It didn't sound like the wind. It sounded like someone knocking. The sergeant stood and went to the door. The wind whistled up a flurry of flakes as Prinville opened the door, peering into the darkness before the dawn. The officer thought he saw the faint outline of someone standing in front of the door. The form, huddled against the cold, looked somewhat like the old vagrant who had passed away the night before. Prinville couldn't shake the feeling that he was staring at a ghost. He slammed the door against the whirling snow and hurried back to his desk. The old soldier just couldn't have been at the door. When dawn came, the change, with dawn came the change of shifts. Sergeant Prinville nervously told the day shift officers about the phantom who knocked on the door. The other officers laughed in disbelief. Surely, they said, the swirling snow had been playing tricks on, Prin- on, on Prinville's vision. But the ghost of the old soldier was not so easily dismissed. The spirit began to show up at the station every winter. Prinville saw the ghost several times after that, and so did his skeptical colleagues. Nearly every officer who worked at the station saw the old veteran because he came back every winter for many years. On each night following a storm, the night duty officer would hear a knocking at the door. Whoever answered the knock would find the old man standing patiently outside, silently asking for a warm place to sleep. Then the spirit would fade away. Prinville later said that he often spoke to the phantom, but that the old soldier never made any reply. Maybe it was just enough for the old man to know there was some place he could go to find shelter, somewhere in the city he was welcome. The West Hall Ghost It's just a short walk from West Hall to Wilkerson Dining Hall at the University of North Dakota. Hardly enough to bother with a coat, even in winter. But for a young college student in 1962, the decision to make that short trip without a coat quickly turned into the worst and last idea she ever had. The vicious North Dakota blizzard raged so fiercely that the girl couldn't even see the dining hall from her dormitory. As the door of the West Hall closed behind her, as she started towards the dining hall, she clutched her thin cardigan more tightly around her shoulders. She'd be fine. She'd made this walk over a hundred times. She had dinner in the dining hall every single day for heaven's sake. But the wind whipped the snow into a fury of singing white, and the cold bit her, bit at her through her clothes. Before she had taken another step, she was lost. She tried to turn around to get back to the warmth of the dorm, but even that short distance was insurmountable. She stumbled in the raging snowstorm, disoriented by the cold, the blowing snow, and the constant whistling wind. No one knows when the girl fell to the white ground or how long it took her to succumb to the cold embrace of hypothermia. But the next morning, the student was found frozen to death at 60, about 60 feet from West Hall. Stunned by the senseless tragedy, the university constructed tunnels to connect the five dorms to Wilkerson Hall, 
providing a safe warm walk to the dining hall, but it was far too late for the young student, the student who now haunts the West Hall Tunnel. She began appearing to terrified students shortly after the tunnel system was completed. She shows up on stormy winter nights. Sometimes she appears to be distraught, seeking a way out of the tunnel before vanishing. At other times, she simply stares blankly out in front of her, gazing unseeingly at frightened witnesses, then disappears. No matter how she presents herself, it is unmistakably her. The ghost is described as strikingly pretty, with short black hair and big dark eyes, and she only appears from the waist up, hanging in the air with no legs. The ghost appearances have become less and less frequent over the years. Nowadays, she shows up only during especially violent blizzards, when the sky is white with thickly falling snow. No one knows why she manifests in the West Hall Tunnel, instead of above ground, where her body was found. Maybe even in death, she too appreciates the warmth of the tunnel. A luxury on a night when the wind howls with the chill of winter. Cool, let me get this. It's warm in here, under the lights. Darling's the station. There's just something about the romance of railways that tugs at some people's souls. And the rail system in England at the turn of the century, 20th century, was quite possibly, just ran, I mean, the best in the world. With such a compelling reputation, it's no wonder that some railway stations end up with their own collections of ghosts. Darling's the station, some 200 miles north of London, has seen its share of tragedy. On June 27, 1928, a freight train and a passenger train collided head-on. 25 people were killed and 45 were injured, but none of those folks seemed to have stayed on at the station. That doesn't mean the station is without a ghost or two. Some years ago, an old porter was working at the Darlington station. It was a cold night in the depths of an English winter. Around midnight, the porter decided to take a short break. He was freezing cold, and he just wanted a bite to eat and something nice and hot to drink. Downstairs, underneath the station, was a cellar and coal house. The cellar was for the employees' use. The porters often kept a fire going in the hearth for quick comfort. The porter went down the cellar steps, took off his heavy overcoat, and sat down with a sigh of relief on the bench in front of the crackling fire. It was good to take a load off for a bit, and soon he'd have water on for a spot of tea. A noise from the coal house door caught the porter's attention. A stranger stepped into the cellar from the coal house. A big black lab trotted at his side. The stranger moved slowly closer to the fire. His gaze locked on the porter. The porter, meanwhile, never took his eyes off the stranger. Without warning, the strange man lashed out and struck the porter. Instinctively, the porter put up his fist and threw a punch back. His fist went right through the man and hit the stone in the fireplace. The rough stone took the skin off his knuckles. But his punch seemed to have some effect. The stranger let out an unearthly scream and staggered into the fire. The dog, seeing its master in distress, lunged and sank its teeth deep into the porter's leg. The porter let out a yell of his own. The stranger stood up straight and called the black dog to his side with a snap of his fingers. Man and dog both backed slowly away from the porter right through the closed coal house door. When he had recovered, the porter lit a lamp, lit a lamp and opened the door to the coal house. Thank you for sending me to Mario Land. Now I'm back. 
When he had recovered, the porter lit a lamp and opened the door to the coal house. He looked around the room thoroughly, but he found no trace of the stranger or the big black lab. Weeks later, the porter heard that a former railway employee, a man who worked in the ticket office, had committed suicide at the station by throwing himself in front of a speeding express train. The body, well, what was left of it, was taken to the coal house to await the arrival of the undertaker. The ticket agent had owned a large black Labrador retriever. The lady vanishes. Very few of us are what we seem. Agatha Christie, The Man in the Mist. The mystery writer. Hang on one second. Okay. All right. The mystery writer, Agatha Christie, remains the best selling novelist of all time. Her novels are marvelous, marvelously plotted and have become the model for the modern mystery story. She introduced several iconic characters to the world, including Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot. I hope I said that right. One of Christie's plays, The Mousetrap, opened in West End Theater in 1952 and is still running. Her works have sold over 2 billion copies. She is outsold only by the Bible and the works of William Shakespeare. And for 11 days of December 1926, Christie herself was embroiled in a mystery worthy of one of her own best-selling novels. For those 11 days, Agatha Christie disappeared. Shortly after 9.30 p.m. on Friday, December 3rd, 1926, Christie went upstairs and kissed her sleeping daughter, Rosalind, age 7. Then she went back downstairs, left her house, got into her Morris Cowley, and drove away. Her car was found abandoned on a steep slope in Surrey, England. She had left behind her fur coat and her driver's license. Christie was already a famous novelist, so her disappearance made headlines immediately. Police even theorized that she'd been murdered by her husband, Archie, who wanted to leave her for his mistress, Nancy Neal. The search for the famous author soon grew to include 15,000 volunteers. People looked for her using search and rescue dogs. An air search was mounted, the first in history. Christie's disappearance even made the front page of the New York Times. Two of Christie's fellow mystery writers, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Dorothy Sayers, author of the Lord Peter Whimsey series, were tapped to join the hunt. Who better to solve a mystery than a crime fiction writer? Better yet, two of the best at their craft, but even the creator of Sherlock Holmes struck out. As the search continued, more troubling details came to light. Christie's car was found close to a natural spring known as a silent pool. Legend had it that two young children had died there. It was feared that Christie had drowned herself in the pool, but there was no body and no motive. Christie's new novel, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, was selling well. Christie's career was on an upswing, and her future looked bright. On December 14th, to everyone's relief, the author turned up safe and sound at a spa hotel in Harrogate, Yorkshire, a distance of some 190 miles from Surrey, where her car had been found. She had checked in under the name Mrs. Neal, who wholly unsubtly, which turned out to be a dig at her husband and his mistress. When asked where she'd been for 11 days, Christie claimed she couldn't remember. Amnesia might be a viable dodge for a character in a mystery novel, but for the novelist herself, it was a flimsy excuse. There were several bizarre aspects of Christie's disappearance. Although the newspapers throughout England and America were plastered with her photograph, Agatha Christie didn't recognize herself in any of the pictures. And when she got to Yorkshire, she simply blended in with the soirees going on in Harrogate without a word to anyone. Harrogate was a swanky place in the 1920s, and the hotel Christie checked into, the Swan Hydro, 
was a fancy spa. Despite checking in with almost no luggage, the famous author soon found parties and balls to attend. She was eventually recognized by one of the hotel's banjo players, Bob Tappan, who called the police. The police, in turn, notified Christie's husband, who immediately showed up to collect his wife. But even then, Christie seemed blithely unconcerned with the whole situation. She made Archie wait in the hotel lounge while she changed into her evening gown. There was no sign that Christie's abandoned car had been an accident, but that was just, but that was just, that was the only theory the police had to go on. That Christie had somehow been involved in an accident or suffered some other trauma and had developed amnesia. It remains one of the great unanswered questions in the literary world, though, because Christie, Agatha Christie, never spoke of those missing 11 days. December 3rd through the 14th, 1926, will forever be a mystery. And for this one, there is no famous detective to solve it in the final pages. Okay. The Murder of the Grimes Sisters. The 1950s were supposed to have been an idyllic time in America's history. When we think of the post-war years, we think of poodle skirts and sock hops, young couples sharing a shake at a mall shop, Elvis Presley swinging his hips to the new beat of rock and roll, it's thought of being a safe time, but a time when responsible kids could go off to see a movie in the theater and get home later that evening, having had their fill of popcorn and a double feature. Sadly, it didn't always turn out that way, even in the 1950s. On December 28, 1956, excuse me, two of the Grimes children, sisters Patricia, 13 years old, and Barbara, 15 years old, left their home on Damon Avenue in Chicago. They were both rabid Elvis Presley fans, and they had seen his latest film, Love Me Tender, a mind-boggling 14 times. They were headed to the Brighton Theater to see it for the 15th and final time. The girls left the house around 7.30 in the evening with $2.50 between them, just enough for movie tickets and snacks. Patricia's school friend, Dorothy Wienert, Whiter, sat behind the girls with her own younger sister during the movie. Dorothy and her sister didn't stay for the second half of the double feature. But they did say they saw the Grimes sisters in the popcorn line at the theater during the intermission around 9.30 p.m. Any information about the girls' whereabouts after that is dubious at best. Many people said they saw the sisters on an eastbound CTA bus around 11 p.m. headed into the city, and that they got off the bus at 11.05 at Western Avenue about halfway to their home. Why would they get off there instead of, instead of closer to home? It's unclear. And two teenage boys said they saw the Grimes sisters fooling around near Damon Avenue, giggling and jumping out of doorways at each other. At that point, around 11.30 at night, they would have been about two blocks from home. What is known for sure is that Patricia and Barbara were expected home around 11.45 p.m. Their mother, Loretta Grimes, started to worry when midnight came and went with no sign of the girls. She sent two of her other children, Teresa and Joey, to the bus stop at 35th and Hoyne, hoping the errant girls would turn up there. Teresa and Joey waited until 2 a.m. Three buses came and went, but no sign of Barbara or Patricia. They came home and told their mother the distressing news. At 2.15, Loretta Grimes called the police to report her two daughters missing. During the next few weeks, the city of Chicago launched one of the largest missing persons investigations ever seen. An unbelievable 300,000 people were questioned. 2,000 of those were interrogated seriously. Acting on a tip that the girls had been, that the girls had been seen heading to, for Nashville, Tennessee, and knowing their obsession with Elvis, the star himself made an appeal to them on January 19th. 
If you are good Presley fans, you'll go home and ease your mother's worries. The theory that the girls had run away from home was considered briefly, then discarded. Loretta Grimes was adamant, as only a mother can be, that her daughters hadn't run away. They had no reason to, she argued. And besides, they had just gotten a much-desired brand-new AM radio for Christmas. Loretta felt sure the girls wouldn't have left such a treasure position behind. One of the hundreds of people seriously considered as suspects by the police was Walter Kranz. On January 15th, he made an anonymous phone call to the police claiming that the bodies of the Grimes sisters would be found in a park at 81st and Wolf Road. Furthermore, he claimed that this information had come to him in a dream. Then he hung up. That was enough reason for the police to trace the call. Kranz was picked up for questioning and held at the Englewood police station for some time. He was given multiple lie detector tests, but was later released, when the police could find no solid evidence linking him to the murders. Another suspect was 17-year-old Max Flig. He was brought in to be questioned and offered to take a lie detector test, which he failed. In the middle of the test, he confessed to kidnapping the girls. However, at the time, it was illegal to perform a lie detector test on a minor. The test was inadmissible, despite Flag's, Flag or Flag's, having taken it voluntarily. The police had to let him go free. Flag was sent to prison a few years later for the brutal murder of a young woman. The frantic search for the Grimes sisters came to a tragic end on January 22, 1957. Leonard Prescott, a construction worker, was driving south on German Church Road near Rural Springs when he happened to glance at the side of the road. Just past the guardrail, he thought he saw the white tangled limbs of two discarded clothing mannequins. That was just weird enough for him to stop and take a second look. He went and got his wife, Marie, and cautiously they went up to the guardrail and peered over. The waxy limbs didn't belong to mannequins. The nude bodies of Patricia and Barbara Grimes had been tossed to, at the side of the road. Whoever did the body dump wasn't even concerned enough with being caught to kick the bodies over the drop-off into the ravine and Devil's Creek, just a few feet beyond. Marie Prescott was so upset at the sight of the bodies that she fainted and had to be carried back to the car. The bodies could be mistaken for dummies. They weren't arranged in any meaningful way. They had simply been dumped at the side of the road. Barbara lay face down on her left side with her knees slightly drawn up. Patricia lay face up her body carelessly thrown on top of Barbara's. Both girls had wounds and bruises that remain unexplained to this day. The first working theory put forth by Cook County Sheriff Joseph de Loman and Harry Gloss, an investigator for the county coroner's office, was that the girls had been dumped there just after their deaths, which they estimated as being around January 9th. There had been a heavy snowfall that day, with temperatures falling enough to preserve the bodies as they looked at the time of death. Besides the, bodies, besides, the bodies were so close to the road, it was difficult to imagine they hadn't been seen between December 28th and January 9th, when there would have been no snow to cover them. Furthermore, the officials pointed to a thin layer of ice that encased the bodies. That could only have informed the investigators to arrive the snow fell and melted on the cooling bodies. It takes time for a corpse to lose its body heat. Even a body that had been dead for a few hours but retain enough heat to melt falling snowflakes for a while, allowing a scrim of ice to form as the water froze. But the autopsies told a different story. When the bodies had thawed, the coroners at the Cook County morgue examined the girls' stomach contents. They discovered that the last meal the girls had eaten was dinner before leaving for the movie theater. Apparently, no mention was made of the popcorn they had eaten at the show. 
According to this, the girls had to have been killed within hours of the kidnapping on December 28th. So, so which physical evidence should we believe? The ice on the bodies or the stomach contents? The physical evidence actually contradicts itself, which should not be possible. The investigators were equally baffled. Three experienced pathologists performed autopsies. Although the official cause of death was murder, the best they could do, as far as the explanation was, secondary shock due to exposure to the elements. And they only wrote that down because they couldn't determine any other cause of death. Meaning, oddly enough, that none of the wounds on the girls' bodies were fatal ones. Patricia and Barbara were buried on January 28, 1957, one month after they went missing. Portrait photos of the girls were propped up on their white caskets. They were buried in they were buried in the Catholic cemetery. But the Grimes sisters were not at rest when they may not rest in peace. German Church Road is the site of, of a residual haunting. Many witnesses have reported hearing a car pull off the side of the road at the dump site. There was the squeaking crunch of a car door opening. Then, two sickening thumps. Dead meat hitting frozen ground. The door slams shut, the engine revs, and the car pulls away. All of this is heard, never seen. But the Grimes sisters are not forgotten. The Glastonbury vanishes. Vanishings. Grab this one. Drink, drink, drink. Okay. The area around Glastonbury Mountain, near Bennington, Vermont, is New England's, New England's version of the Bermuda Triangle. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, at least six people disappeared in that area and stayed. Two of these vanishings happened in December. The second person to go missing was an 18-year-old college student, Paula Jean Weldon, a sophomore at Bennington College, set off for a short hike on the long trail on Sunday, December 1st, 1946. She never came back out of the woods. The next day, the Sheriff's Department launched a massive search for the young woman. Deputies were joined by 400 townspeople, including students and faculty at Bennington College. They searched the woods thoroughly for the petite popular student. In the weeks that followed, teams from the FBI swarmed over the mountain, continuing the desperate search. But despite detailed posters offering a $5,000 reward for Paula's safe return, and a $2,000 reward even if she was found dead, plus the combined efforts of hundreds of volunteers and a famous clairvoyant, no trace of Paula Weldon was ever found. On December 22nd, the Sheriff's Department officially ended the search, and Paula's heartbroken family and friends were left to celebrate a bleak Christmas without her. Exactly three years later, on December 1st, 1949, Jim Tedford became the third person in the area to go missing. He was a World War II veteran, age 56. Oddly enough, things in Tedford's life were already a bit strange. In the early 1940s, Tedford came home one day to find that his wife, Pearl, had disappeared without a trace. Jim, as mentioned, was in his 50s. Pearl was 28. Were they having problems? Did she tire of life? Did she tire of life with an older man? Has she found someone else? We'll never know. Tedford slipped into a downward spiral, a depression. And in 1947, he moved into a veteran's home in Bennington, Vermont. He kept to himself, mired in his personal misery. He left the home only occasionally to visit relatives in St. Albans. He finished up such a visit early December, that early December day in 1949 and got on a bus to return to Bennington. Incredibly, 
when his sister saw him get on the bus, but apparently he never got off. Even the bus driver had no explanation as to how one of his passengers could disappear without a trace from a moving bus. The Indians believed Glastonbury Mountain was a cursed place. Early settlers found it an eerie spread of wild land, full of strange lights and unexplainable sounds. Some of the settlers came away from the mountain with tales of monstrous animals. And in some, and some people, like Jim Tedford and Paula Jean Weldon, seem simply vanished into the unknown. Now here's something I'd like to investigate. The Marfa Lights. Hi, Jerry. Hi, Marisa. A car pulls over to the set. A car pulls over to the side of Highway 90 in West Texas, rolling to a stop with a soft crunch on the desert sands. Another car follows, and drivers and passengers get out. Someone has sought to grab a few lawn chairs. Those without chairs perch on the hoods of the cars. The engines tick softly as they cool the night air. Everyone looks towards the horizon, southeast of Marfa. There they are, blowing balls of light from form in the distance, swooping across the landscape. They change color every so often, fading from red to blue, back to red, and then gleaming white. They are the Marfa lights, and they have been fascinating people since at least the 1850s. As with all spook lights, theories abound as to what the Marfa lights actually are. Skeptics say there's, perfect, there's a perfectly logical explanation. The lights are campfires, perhaps lights for passing cars. Believers, however, point out the absence of car headlights in the 19th century, which was when the lights were first reported. Whatever they are, the Marfa lights are said to be mostly aloof, but sometimes friendly, even whimsical. They usually appear as glowing points of light far off in the distance, but some viewers claim to have been approached by the lights. They say the lights can zip across the desert at astonishing speeds and dissolve right before Hang on. Okay, right before, there we go, right before cannoning into the onlookers. Most people who have watched the Marfa lights agree that the lights are not a threat. In fact, one winter night, a rancher had a close encounter with the lights, and, that, and they saved his life. Halfway between Marfa and Alpine, Texas, are the Chinati Mountains. Years ago, a local rancher was out late in the day, driving his strayed stock down from the mountain slopes. A blizzard whipped up and the rancher was caught out in the nasty weather as night fell. He knew he had little chance of making it safely back to his cabin in the dark along the dangerous mountain trails, but to stop walking would, free, would, free, would be to freeze to death. The rancher had no choice but to head home, but he soon realized he'd lost the trail. A huge boulder blocked his way. He was hopelessly lost. Suddenly, the rancher was face to face with several flashing lights. They spoke with him, telling him that he was dangerously close to the edge of a cliff. He had to follow the lights and trust them, or die. The lights bobbed down a trail, lighting it as they went, and the rancher followed them. They led the rancher to a tiny cave where he could escape the vicious wind and driving snow. He crawled into the cave, and a large light followed him. The rancher discovered he could warm himself with the heat radiating from the light. A smaller light wished itself into the cave, too. The light spoke to the man again. Somehow the rancher understood that the lights were spirits from the distant past that had come to save him. After a while, the man slept, secure in the protection of the lights. When he woke, it was daylight. The lights were gone, and the sun was shining. The man crawled out of the cave and stood getting his bearings. He noticed the boulder that had blocked his trail the night before. Cautiously, he climbed it and peered down over the cliff edge that the lights had warned him about. 
the darkest midnight in December. Sadly, the same tragedies that plague us during the rest of the year can happen during the most joyous season too, as these stories show. Some of the stories have spirits associated with them, others simply stand as grim reminders of life's frailty. Here are several tales of murder, mayhem, and malevolence. The Curse of, of Tecumseh One of the main characters in the ongoing story of the clashes between whites and Native Americans was Tecumseh, leader of the Shawnee. Tecumseh and his brother... <laughs> okay, guys. <laughs> I'm not laughing at, at the Native Americans. I'm laughing at the names, okay? Because you guys know how I am in names. I'm going to call him T. We'll just go with that. Who called himself the Prophet. Tangled regularly with future President William Henry Harrison. Born to wealthy parents near Richmond, Virginia, Harrison joined the Army in 1791 and distinguished himself in the early Indian Wars. In those days, the western frontier was a wilderness below the Great Lakes in the area that later became Ohio and Indiana. Tecumseh and T formed a large confederation of tribes in the area. The railing between Harrison as governor of the Indian Territory and the two brothers as leaders of the Indian tribes was not only military, but social and political too. In the early 1800s, Harrison was looking for a way to discredit the brothers in the eyes of their people. In 1806, he sent an open letter to the tribes gathered at Tippecanoe, or Tippecanoe, Tippecanoe, which the Shawnee used as their main home. Harrison issued a challenge to the tribe's leaders. Quote, if he, referring to T, is really a prophet, Ask him to cause the sun to stand still or the moon to alter its course, the rivers to cease to flow, or the dead to rise from their graves. Harrison, a Christian, was framing this challenge from the Christian perspective. Quite literally, he was asking for T to perform a miracle to prove his fitness to lead. The letter was duly delivered to the brothers for consideration. Now, when you ask someone from a nature-oriented culture for miracles involving nature, they're liable to take you seriously. According to one story, Tecumseh and T shut themselves away for an hour to confer in private. When the hour was up, they came out and ordered the tribe to gather to hear the reply to Harrison. T announced that, as the prophet, he had consulted with the Great Spirit, and boy was she mad. The Great Spirit, it seemed, was displeased by Harrison's audacious request. The prophet announced, 50 days from this day there will be no cloud in the sky, yet when the sun has reached its highest point, at that moment, will the Great Spirit take it into her, into her hand and hide it from us. The darkness of night will cover us, and the stars will shine round about us. The birds will roost, and the night creatures will awaken and stir. The day predicted for this ap apocalyptic event was June 16, 1806. Around noon that day, a total solar eclipse crossed the region. In North America, the path of totality stretched from the southern tip of Lake Michigan to just north of Cincinnati. This covered most of the territory occupied by Tecumseh's tribes, Greenville, Ohio, where Tecumseh and T view the event with a thousand or so followers, was not in the path of totality, but they did see the eclipse at an impressive 99% totality. How did T know about the coming eclipse? As a young man, T was an alcoholic. He fell into a fire during a bender and survived. After that, he dedicated his life to preaching sobriety to his people. 
he came close to home preferring the company of his striving family. His brother, Tecumseh, on the other hand, had a completely different personality. Tecumseh was well was well traveled and well educated to boot. He enjoyed mingling with people of diverse backgrounds. He befriended a Mr. Galloway who lived in Western Ohio. Rebecca Galloway, the settler's daughter, taught Tecumseh how to read English. This was a time when most illiterate households kept an, or sorry, most literate households kept an all an almanac handy. Tecumseh could have seen the news of the June 16th eclipse and filed it away in his mind. It certainly came in handy when he needed to pull the miracle out of his back pocket, unfortunately. This failed to impress Harrison, and the whites and the natives grew closer and closer to war. Early in 1811, Tecumseh went on a grand tour of the Midwest and down to the southern states. He intended to speak as many native warriors and chiefs as possible to try and raise an army to drive the white settlers back into the sea. He spoke with the Sioux and Apache in the West, and they, being the Sioux and the Apache, were totally on board with the plan. But not everyone was willing to listen to Tecumseh's fiery message. The Alabama tribe, who lived along the southern stretch of the Mississippi River, was particularly dismissive of the Shawnee leader's message. Their chief casually told Tecumseh, promises are like the wind. The wind is free. Talk is nothing. This did not sit well with Tecumseh. Furious, he promised that when he returned to his tribe, the Alabama people would be sorry. I will stamp the ground three times, and the earth will tremble and shake down all your wigwams. You will remember Tecumseh. On December 16, 1811, the most violent earthquake in the history of the United States roared through the central Midwest, with its epicenter at New Madrid, near the junction of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. It was just the beginning of months of destruction as the ground continued to shake. The New Madrid quakes were the most damaging in Earth's history. Between December 16, 1811 and March 1812, over 2,000 quakes rocked the central Midwest, and 6,000 to 10,000 pummeled the area around New Madrid. Three of the New Madrid quakes are on the list of America's top earthquakes. December 16, 1811, 8.1 on the Richter scale. January 23, 1812, 7.8, and February 7, 1812, as much as 8.8. That first quake on December 16 was felt strongly across 130,000 square miles and moderately over nearly 3 million square miles. It rattled windows as far away as the White House and rang church bells in Boston. The Mississippi River, lifeblood of the Midwest and home to the Alabama tribe, ran backwards for a few hours because of the upheaval of the soil under the riverbed. The exact number of casualties is unknown, but estimates range from several hundred to several thousand dead. The Alabama Indians met each other's terrified glances. Tecumseh did say he was going to stamp his feet and make the earth tremble. Coincidence? On the, or the supernatural power of a man at the end of his rope with frustration over the decline of his culture and his people? Hey. The Brooklyn Theater Fire. On December 5th, 1876, theater patrons streamed into the Brooklyn Theater in New York. They were there to attend a held-over show called The Two Orphans. The Brooklyn Theater had been built in 1871, excuse me, opening its doors for the first, first performance on October 2nd of that year. The Brooklyn soon became a showplace in the New York theater scene. Built on the site of the old St. John's Episcopal Church, the theater was designed in an L shape, 
with two wings. This being New York City, space was at a premium even then, and the theater hotel was tucked into the angle between the two wings of the theater. The larger of the wings contained the proscenium theater with the rear stage wall of Bunny Johnson Theater Street. Now, for you guys really quick that don't know what a proscenium theater is, a proscenium theater is one of those theaters where they can fly in the backdrops. So you have the theater, and you could you get up on the stage, and you look up, and it's really, really tall back there because all the rigging is up. There's like there's like ropes up there for rigging and the sandbags and everything. And they can, like, like for all the backdrops, they can literally attach the backdrops and then lower, and raise them and lower them in and move them side by side. That's what, that's what one of those theaters are. The larger of the wings contained the Prestimian Theater with the rear stage wall of Buddy Johnson Street. This wing also included the auditorium seating area, the stage, the actors' dressing rooms, and storage for scenery, furniture, pro furniture props, and flats and painted backgrounds. 20-foot wide scene doors opened on the Johnson Street to accommodate large scenery flats. See, large scenery flats. The stage doors were also on Johnson Street. These were smaller but still wide enough for people carrying armloads of props or costumes to get through comfortably. As those two sets of doors were accessible to the stage, they were reserved for use by the production crews. The two orphans had been held over due to its popularity, but it was nearing the end of its run. Materials for the next two productions were already being stored at the theater. The backstage area, usually fairly spacious, was crammed with tightly packed items such as scenery flats. This made it difficult for actors and crew to walk around backstage and in the wings. Space was at such a, pre was at such a premium that the manager decided that the fire buckets filled with water should be removed so people wouldn't knock them over and spill them while trying to maneuver around the extra set pieces. Yeah, there's a smart move. Even more scenery flats were stacked leaning against the back wall, blocking the fire hose. There's another smart move. The architect who designed the building, Thomas R. Jackson, had the safety of the theater patrons uppermost in his mind. He designed the theater so that in case of emergency, the building could be completely empty within five minutes. There were no fire escapes, but Jackson built three special exits into the long wall, the L. In addition to the large scene and stage doors, there were three six-foot-wide double doors that opened onto floods of an alley which led to Washington Street. Although these doors were kept locked to prevent people from sneaking in without a ticket, the ushers all had keys so the doors could be opened easily at a moment's notice. The theater had three sitting levels with different ticket pricing according to, design, according to you know, what, what seats they wanted. On the main floor, there were 600 seats in two sections, Park K and Park K Circle. The best seats were in Parquet Circle, and those tickets were $1.50. Parquet seating was close to the stage, meaning that, although patrons were close to the action, the sight lines weren't as good. Those seats were not ideal, so they were priced at $0.75. Cents. The lower balcony held 550 seats at $1 each. The upper balcony, or family circle, sat 450 patrons, with seats priced at just $0.50. Cents. The main flight of stairs from the first balcony was 10 feet wide and led to the box office lobby. The family circle, though, had a different design than the two lower levels. It had only one exit staircase leading from the upper balcony. It was a generous width, nearly seven feet. But to get downstairs, patrons had to walk down two flights of stairs separated by a long corridor. Just as on a ship, the folks in the cheap seats weren't allowed to mingle with the patrons who paid higher prices for their tickets. The family circle had a separate entrance, a separate set of stairs, even a separate box office. 
The theater was lit with gas lighting. The stage itself also used gas lights equipped with reflectors and protective wire frames. The wire enclosures were designed to keep objects at least a foot away from the open flame. During the performance of The Orphans on December 5th, there were about 1,200 people inside the theater, including over 100 theater employees, actors, and stage crew. The house manager reported that they had sold about 250 tickets for Parquet and Parquet Circle, less than half of the 600 seat capacity. 360 tickets for Dress Circle, over half of the 550 seats, were still available. And 400 tickets for Family Circle, meaning nearly all the 450 seats that there were filled. Not bad for Tuesday night. Just past 11 p.m., the curtain was set to rise on the fifth and final act of the play. Stage manager J.W. Thorpe noticed that a set piece that had, that had just been raised to get it out of the way was hanging at a funny angle with the torn corner. Worse than that, there was a small fire, not much bigger than a man's fist, burning in the damaged corner. Thorpe realized that the piece had gotten hung up for a moment on the wire cage of one of the gas lights as it was raised and had ignited. The star of the show, actress Kate Claxton, was in position for the beginning of the scene. She was lying on her back on a straw pallet of the stage having been arranged like a derelict boathouse. Two other actors were also on their marks waiting for the curtain to rise, with two more waiting in the wings for their cues. The theater was filled with the hush of an expected audience. Thorpe had a decision to make. There were no handy fire buckets filled with water, and he couldn't get to the fire hose behind the flats leaning against the back wall. He signaled for the curtain to be raised anyway and muttered for two, two nearby carpenters to try to beat the fire out. The curtain went up, and Kate gamely said her first few lines. Lying on her bed of straw, she could see sparks floating above her as the carpenters whacked at the drop with long poles. As Kate lay there, another actress knelt just behind her, hidden from the audience by the canvas backdrop. Save yourself, for God's sake, she whispered. I'm running now. The fire grew bigger despite the carpenters' efforts, and soon licks of flame were drifting down along with more sparks. Actress Mary Ann Farron, who had been waiting in the wings, jumped her cue and came onto the stage to kneel next to Kate. Pretending to play her role, she whispered to Kate that the fire was growing. By this time, the audience could see smoke and flames coming from the stage, and they started to panic. One of the actors on stage, J.B. Steadley, stepped to the front of the stage and tried to bully the audience back into their seats. The play will go on and the fire will be put out. Be quiet. Get back to your seats, he shouted. Amazingly, this worked for a bit. The audience settled down, and some people did sit back down. Kate, having abandoned her palate, attempted to further reassure the patrons. She, too, broke character and stepped forward, telling the audience that the fire was part of the play. Nothing to be worried about. The soul just remained calm. But as she said the last bit, a burning piece of wood fell to the stage at her feet. Everyone's nerve broke, and panic swept in the theater. Hang on a second, okay? Okay. Oh, there we go. Sometimes it goes back on me. Most of the actors and production crew found their way to the large stage doors and went through them to safety, but the growing fire blocked this escape route for the audience. Head usher Thomas Rockford, Rockford unlocked the emergency exit on the Flood's Alley at the rear of the auditorium. Patrons seated in the parquet or parquet circle on the main floor easily found their way out through that exit. But when Rockford opened the rear exit door, the sudden floor of fresh air into the building fed the flames, and the fire spread to the back of the auditorium and up toward the balconies. 
The people in the dress circle, lower balcony, weren't having as much luck escaping the fire. Most people didn't know there was an emergency staircase on the opposite wall from the main staircase. So everyone in the dress circle stampeded for the main stairs, which led to Washington Street Lobby. The safety of the street lay just beyond the lobby. But panic stole reason, and the staircase soon became jammed with people trying to claw their way out. Fortunately, for these trapped patrons, the first precinct police station was just next door. Officers rushed to the scene, and several positioned themselves at the bottom of the stairs. Policemen and theater employees worked to untangle the crowd as people pushed forward to get to the exit. Nearly everyone who had been seated in a lower balcony eventually made it out of the building to safety. It was a far different story in the upper balcony, the family circle. Almost every seat in the upper balcony was filled, and when the fire broke out, all 400 people in the balcony surged toward the only exit. Just as in the lower balcony, the press of bodies quickly became a jam, with no one being able to move in the crush of panicked people. Down below, the raging, down below, the raging fire filled the theater with heat and smoke, which pushed its way along the ceiling and collected in the upper balcony. Soon, the people trapped next to the ceiling began to pass out from the thick smoke and heated air. Firefighters and policemen had by now succeeded in clearing the stairs leading to the lower balcony. They made their way to the dress circle, which was empty. Then they opened a door that connected to the family circle stairs and were met with a, with a roiling wall of thick black smoke. They shouted up the stairs into the darkness, but got no response. Thinking that everyone in the upper balcony had escaped, District Engineer Farley ordered all the first responders out of the building. Within minutes of their evacuation, large cracks shot through the theater wall along Johnson Street. Just under half an hour after the tiny fist-sized fire was spotted, the entire wall of the theater collapsed in a roar of destruction. When Brooklyn Fire Department Chief Engineer Thomas Nevins arrived on the scene to take command, just before 11.30 p.m., he realized quickly that the theater was a total loss. His job at that point was not to put out the blaze. His job was to keep other buildings from catching fire, like the theater hotel, which was snuggled right up against the burning theater. The Brooklyn Theater was allowed to burn itself out. A crowd of onlookers had begun to gather. Some of the people in the crowd were frantic with worry, asking desperately about missing family members. Despite this ominous outpouring of questions, the authorities honestly thought that most people had escaped the fire. Firefighters and policemen had searched the dress circle and found it empty. They hadn't made it as far as the family circle, but no one had answered their calls. Surely, they thought, most people had gotten out in time. Around 3 a.m., the blaze finally began to relent. Chief Nevins tried to enter the building but at that point, but the heat and smoke were still too intense, and he had to back away. He tried again later and was able to get into the Johnson Street entrance. Just inside the doors, he found the body of a woman sitting on the floor propped up against the wall. Her legs had largely been burned away, and the rest of her body was severely burned as well. Nevins realized with a sick sense of horror that where there was one body, there were bound to be others. He came back out of the building, but didn't tell anyone what he found. He feared that the milling crowd, already on edge with the tension of uncertainty, would, would storm the crumbling building. No one entered the theater again until well after 6 a.m. The fire had nearly burned itself out. Almost nothing remained of the auditorium. The entire structure had all collapsed into the cellar. Chief Nevins decided that the time had come to enter the theater once again. The first thing the firemen noticed was that the cellar was filled with a tangle of charred debris. 
As they came closer, they realized with a jolt that the blanket material in the cellar wasn't just rubble. It was a smoking tangle of human corpses. When the balconies had burned through and collapsed into the cellar, they had, they had taken all these poor souls, the people trapped in the family circle, with them. Although the bodies were horribly burned, the victims had died of smoke inhalation and heat long before the buildings collapsed. The firemen staggered from the cellar with the news that as many as 20 people had perished. By 9 a.m., as the firemen worked steadily on body retrieval, that number had risen to 70. Two hours after that, they found 20 more victims. By early afternoon, firemen estimated that over 200 people had lost their lives in fire. It would take nearly three days for workers to remove all the bodies from the smoldering wreckage of the Brooklyn Theater. Many corpses simply fell apart as firemen tried to pick them up or crumbled at the slightest touch. In many cases, the bodies were burned beyond recognition, and so badly that not even a gender could be determined. In the end, nearly 100 victims of the fire could not be identified. They were buried in a mass grave in Greenwood Cemetery by the city of Brooklyn. The grave, dug in a semicircle, was used for the victims that could not be identified and for people whose families couldn't afford to pay for burial. After all, most of the victims had been in the cheapest seats. 103 people were laid to rest in the common grave. They were arranged with their heads towards the center of the semicircle and donated coffins trimmed with silver. Over 2,000 people attended the services for these mostly unknown victims. The number of people killed in the Brooklyn Fire Theater Fire engraved on the memorial marker in Greenwood Cemetery is 278. But it wasn't easy to arrive at that number, and it may not even be correct. It was difficult for the coroner's office to figure out how many complete bodies could be made up from the piles of arms, heads, legs, and torsos. And it was impossible to account for body parts that had been burned away entirely. Henry Sims, the coroner for Kings County, announced the death toll was 293 on the Friday following the fire, but later revised it down to 283. Later, researchers have placed the number of victims closer to 300. For the first two days of recovery efforts after the fire, much of the work, including guarding the ruins, was done by the Brooklyn Police Department. Many of the officers have been working around the clock, have been called to the scene from, from the regular beats around the city. Members of the 13th and 14th Regiments at the New York National Guard offered to stand in for the officers, giving them a much-needed rest and allowing them to resume their usual duties. The 14th Regiment was given night shift beginning 6.30 p.m. At first, the guardsmen were kept busy patrolling the charred ruins, keeping mourners safe, and, war and warning away curiosity seekers and scavengers. But eventually, things settled down, and the guardsmen were left to watch over the site in quiet wakefulness. But the guards weren't alone. Sometimes they would hear the soft sound of a woman's sobs coming from the cellar. No one was allowed inside the building, especially at night. The wreckage of the cellar was pitch black, and it was dangerous to go wandering around. Two of the guards, hearing these desolate cries, went into the building to find the distraught woman. They saw a dark shape in the cellar, a woman, or so they thought. She was walking through the debris, weeping, bent over as though she was looking for something, or someone. One of the men clambered over to the wreckage to get closer to, get closer to her, to try and escort her out of the dangerous, dangerous ruins. But as he got closer, the woman just vanished. The spirit appeared two more times over the next week, then was never seen or heard again. Either the woman found what she was looking for, or she just gave up. All right, guys, that's it for this week.
We'll continue next week. There's some cheery Christmas stories for y'all. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I know it's Sunday. People getting ready for work and stuff, but it's kind of like a nice way to wind into your Sunday. Again, for those of you keeping track, Jack and Sally had too much of that funny tasting eggnog last night and couldn't get up today. So they're still they're still back there sleeping. So I had to switch hats. But they'll be back tomorrow. All right. I want to thank you all. And I want to remind you all to, uh, if, if you haven't done so already, hit that like button. If you, if you like what you heard, hit that smiley button. Hit those hearts. It helps us with the FYP on Facebook. And uh, thank you, uh, Marisa and Jerry, for commenting. I really appreciate that. And if you haven't done so already and uh, you like what you heard, please hit that follow button if you're on Facebook and that subscribe button if you're on YouTube. I want to thank you all for coming. And please do check over at the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team meetup site. There is an event there that Nancy and I are putting on next Sunday. I believe it's at 7 p.m. Pacific. And that will be a solstice psychic reading. So go come on over and check that out. Anyway, I want to thank you all. I will see you tomorrow. Yes, you will be with us tomorrow. We're going to be talking ghost. Go, we're going to be talking ghost adventures and ghost hunting. And she's going to do some readings. So we'll see you tomorrow, usual time, 6:30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening. <laughs>